1: And maybe this is really simplifying (laughs) it, maybe, but, but I think they think that there's a lot of money in local government and and in government generally. Um, And I, I often get really frustrated when vendors, they'll come through with these very amazing products, right? And they'll, They'll sell into a small council, the, the Maserati or the Lamborghini. This council needs a Mazda, right? It, it, it can't afford that level of service or product. And I think what happens is they don't take the time often to understand the genuine issues that those communities and councils are having.
0: Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Governments have always undergone changes as the needs and desires of their citizens change, but there's never been a change quite like the recent push around government digital transformation in the wake of the pandemic. This has been an ongoing application of the latest technologies to improve a government's performance, and it's critical to meeting the expectation of today's citizens. Globally, this transformation is also referred to as e-government, and there are a lot of commonalities across the IT modernization landscape and governments in countries all over the world. And while citizens are the primary focus of governments, as they should be, there's also a focus on a number of other priorities, which we're going to discuss in today's episode with my guest, Tracy Whitelaw. Tracy is the Chief Digital Officer for the Local Government Association of Queensland in Australia, and just last year won the 2021 Executive Leader of the Year Award for her leadership in e-government. We're going to cover a lot of things, including what she thinks is one of the greatest challenges the industry is facing right now, and give us a glimpse into digital transformation through the lens of someone leading these programs from down under. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Of course, I'm very happy to be here, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Great to reconnect, also.
0: That's, I mean, that's right. Um, so, one of the things that I have, I mean, I, I want to say, I loved about COVID. I, first of all, I'm sorry. I know you just recovered from COVID. I'm, I'm <laughs> yes. glad. I'm glad you're doing a little bit better. But one of the things that it's brought us is the ability to scale out. And I know, I, I'm sure, like you, I was speaking at a whole lot of a whole not, lot of number of events. All over the world over the past couple of years, and one of those events brought us together. We were speaking at the same one. Um, I think you were at Queensland Urban Utilities at the time, yes, um, where you were head of digital data and analytics. You had some really cool use cases going on, some things that were pretty innovative, um, especially talking around IoT. Why don't you share some of those with our listeners? Because it's honestly one of the things that I remembered about about you after we had after we had chatted.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was my role. Um, so that was a, a couple of years ago now, but it was such an interesting space for us at the time. Um, Queensland Urban Utilities is, you know, the biggest water provider in Queensland, um, responsible for providing water to Brisbane, our, our largest city and many others. And, you know, at the time they'd really just started on this digital transformation journey. And I say that with, it's such a, um, a difficult, Word to describe for me digital transformation because it, it means so many things to so many people. Um, but at urban utilities, it was really about how do we better connect the customer through digital to give them a better experience. And I was very lucky to have an amazing team there um, across digital and data, and we had GIS team as well. And you know, one of the key things around water, particularly, is that it is very expensive when you start losing water for customers, for companies. It is, a, it is expensive on many levels, right? In terms of money, but also it's a valuable resource in terms of um, what we need to live. And one of the things that we started thinking about is how much water are we actually losing, you know, with burst pipes, with leaks and so on? And how do we better fix that? you know, that issue. And IoT, of course, um, and it's been around for a long time now, but IoT is such a great way to start looking at dealing with water issues and, and challenges. And so one of the things that we started to think about was, should we be using IoT to better predict when a pipe might burst or when it might leak? Not only is that better from a customer perspective because they don't get any kind of interruption to service, it also brings costs down for both them and for, you know, us. Um, and it means that we don't have to send out field services when a pipe has burst and all of this disruption is caused. So we started thinking about I- IOT projects that would allow us to really better predict what's happening in the pipes. Um, you know, moving into that predictive analytics space so that we're not just reactive the whole time. And we started rolling out some of those projects along with, of course, you know, the need for smart meters where ultimately the power of data and what you're doing with your data is in your hands. So that was some of the stuff we started looking at. And like, it's certainly stuff they're working on still. Um, You know, I'm not there any longer, but I know they're still very focused on that. Ultimately, it is about delivering better for the customer. And IoT, I think, is a great way to really democratize data and to allow customers to be more powerful, but also to give companies the opportunity to be smarter and make smarter data decisions as well.
0: One of the things that I love about that use case is, to me, it's exactly how a relationship with your government should look, right? It doesn't have to be even some. It can be it can be a value to the citizen and at the same time, like you were saying, a value back to the government. Mm. You're not sending text to go out and check on pipes. You're saving money, saving resources on that end. And at the same time, you're providing predictive uh, predictive maintenance essentially and analytics to your citizens and giving them a better experience, which I think is fantastic. It's the way it should be.
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, what kind of struck me, um, I left Urban Utilities in sort of August 2020 and I went into my role that I'm in currently, which is Chief Digital Officer at the LGAQ. Um, And there were so many parallels in terms of what I had been thinking about from a strategic position at Urban Utilities to what Councils across Queensland are thinking about. So, the Local Government Association of of Queensland, for those who don't know, it's the peak association for local government in Queensland. It's been around for 125 years, so, you know, not a new organization by any means. Um, And I'm the first chief digital officer, and I always joke, no pressure, (laughs) you know, to deliver something. Um, But what I love about it is we work with 77 councils across Queensland. And we advocate on their behalf for policy change, funding, grants, but also for strategic and operational change. So that's where digital really comes into its own. And I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of the stuff that I learned at Urban Utilities was so applicable when I went into my new role, because ultimately Many councils in Queensland and local government are also responsible for things like water. Um, But wider than that, they're responsible for roads, for, you know, emergency response. And IoT and digital devices can absolutely be pivotal in every single one of those areas. So I feel like I learned a lot that then was quite transferable, you know, to what I'm doing now in my current role.
0: So let's talk about that. What's What are some of the things that are your priorities? Now, obviously, in what you were doing at Urban Utilities, it was a lot of around customer experience, citizen experience. I have to imagine that's a pretty top of mind thing for you and, yes. and your stakeholders right now. But on top of that, what are some of the other priorities that you guys have and that, that you're supporting them in?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things I loved, um, I, I remember going for the interview uh, for the role at LGAQ, and um, one of the things that really connected with me, you know, when I applied for the role was that they talk often about better councils, better communities. And that really resonated with me because I think, you know, local government, people often will say rates, roads and rubbish um, is what they deal with. Um, but there's so much more. And, you know the 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 focus that they put on creating good communities and providing good services is really critical for how we live and and community livability is such an important aspect of what we want and what we need from our councils and I just remember you know when I went there and started speaking about that I got really excited about all of the possibilities of what does that actually mean from a digital perspective Um, and I think I was probably a bit naive and I'm happy to say that. because what I thought was, you know, councils are probably fairly mature, and they're digital literacy and data maturity. And certainly some of them are, because we have very diverse councils here in Queensland. Brisbane City Council has, you know, over 10,000 staff, probably 2 million residents. And then Woodrow Woodjo, which is one of our Indigenous councils, I believe has around 30 people in the council and maybe a population of, you know, 300 or so. So very diverse. But I assumed in my naivety that Everyone was quite well advanced on this journey. And what I've learned is actually, you know, we're quite low in data maturity and in digital literacy in many of our councils. And that's many reasons, which I'm happy to talk about. But it gave me and it gives us the team that I have the opportunity to focus on Quite transformative projects um, that really set councils up in their foundations, and I think foundations are often overlooked for for shiny objects and and uh, you know sexy exciting things, but without sort of basic foundations, you are really setting yourself up for failure. So a lot of our projects have focused on. I'll give you an example of the most recent one. Um, there was a, a significant website migration project that the team finished and it was a four-year project and what that project has done is it's actually given 43 out of 77 of those councils an experience online that is modern, accessible, um, you know very much a, a modern website and so that's the kind of transformation that we've been looking at. We're also and I should and I'm sure we'll talk about this more but We're also um, very much in the depths of the data maturity journey for councils. And we actually have our own proprietary um, statewide data lake called LG Sherlock, which we are really pushing councils to become involved in because once you start sharing data and you can benchmark and trend against other councils, that's really powerful. So those are some of the sort of larger projects I guess we've been working on in the last year or so.
0: So tell me this, I mean, you, you absolutely have such a diverse range of groups that you're supporting. How do you support all of them? Obviously digital helps scale, right? But every single group probably is at a different maturity level, like you mentioned, literacy level. How do you build out programs and support such a wide diverse group?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great question. Um, Look, everything we do from a digital perspective should consider economies of scale. That is the value that LGAQ brings because for many of our councils, uh, you know, they don't have the financial sustainability that some of the larger councils might have. So they don't have the resources. Also, they're very regional, so they also don't have access to particular skill sets or resources. And so where we can offer uh, quite a bit of assistance, I suppose, is really in supporting them and supplementing what they need. What that means for us, though, in terms of diversity is there is not, you know, one size fits all for this one. Um, But in saying that, I'm very surprised and continually surprised, actually, at how most councils, regardless of size, are struggling with the same issues. Um, and I and an example of that would be, we've been doing some work recently with one of our larger councils on really cleaning up their data and making sure that they can access it and they understand where it is and what they're going to be using it for and, and sort of helping them get that into a very usable state internally if I go to any one of our smaller councils or mid-sized councils, they will be having the exact same problem. So there are some real fundamental pieces that I think they all share in common. Um, And then as we kind of narrow that funnel, you start to see some changes and some differences in what they're after. But for us, it's about let's, let's go in at that sort of foundational level, help them get it set up correctly, and then we can start to nuance what they might need. So One of our smaller councils at the moment is really focused on providing a a community dashboard. They want to have complete transparency of spend so that their community understands exactly where the money goes. So that, for example, is something that is very bespoke, but we're actually helping them with that. And once we've done that, there'll be an opportunity for us to then roll that out to the rest of the councils. So it's really about that um, approach at scale, but nuancing and being sort of more niche when we have to be as well.
0: So what you're saying is, is kind of exactly what I've seen around the world with governments where even though some of them are at different varying points of in their evolution, there were so many common challenges shared across across country borders. And I'm sure you saw the same thing. Um, and, and I think the pandemic kind of shed a light on a lot of these things, especially yes. ones that are, were not as far along in, in their evolution. I'm curious to know, I mean, you started this role in the middle of the pandemic in August of 2020, so right in the heart of it.
1: How
0: how have you seen the pandemic change the way government is looking at the way they address the future of work, or the way they want to support their citizens, and especially around digital experience.
1: Yeah, look, you're spot on. And I mean, I I took the plunge in the middle of a pandemic to change role, which I always laugh about now. <laughs> I think it's brave. I, yeah, it was it was very brave. But um, you know, I think when it comes to roles, you always sort of know when. My view is you always kind of know when it's your time. And for me, it was it was definitely my time, and the opportunity sort of presented itself, which was very helpful. But to answer your question around, you know, how COVID has changed, I might give you an example actually from my previous role and then, you know, my, my current role. My previous role You know, working from home and sort of that easy access of working from home was kind of there, but it wasn't a holistic approach that we took across the organization. Depending on which um, area that you were in, for example, there would be sort of varying degrees of acceptance of working from home or working remotely. And our systems weren't really set up that well to support that. And I remember that um, actually I had just been in the US in February 2020 and I'd been on holiday for a month and and I got back to Australia on March the 4th and then of course everything went into lockdown on the 13th of March. So I remember having about a week back at work and we knew this was coming and I was so impressed with how the company handled it because suddenly things that had been a challenge due to bureaucracy or personality or any of those things, they just disappeared overnight and decisions were made very quickly. And I recall the weekend before we went into lockdown at urban utilities, where you know the team got together and said, "Right, we have we have to create a VPN that is easy to access. Everyone can use it, no problems." And we spent that weekend doing it, and the technical team were amazing, pulled it all together, tested it, and rolled it out on the Monday. Now. In normal times, that would never have happened. You know, the bureaucracy around that and the process around that would just not have been supported, or would have taken a long time. But suddenly, we had this um, drive to, you know, to successfully transition to remote working, and we did that very well. And in fact, during the rest of my time there, which was, you know, quite a few months, we were never back in the office, and the digital team currently still work predominantly remotely. And from what I understand, you know, a huge part of the business continues to work remotely. And that's actually been a cost saving for the business as well. They've been able to get rid of several floors of the building and so on. So there was a real transition of support to suddenly make things happen. And I've seen that in councils in my new role as well. So at LGAQ, we have a very flexible work policy anyway. Um, We really support people working from where they need to be, and also at times that suit them, you know, within reason. Um, but what I've seen from councils, and I speak to them quite often, many, many of those councils are still supporting remote work that would never have happened before. There was a real sense, I think, um, particularly in some of the more traditional councils and more conservative workforces, that you have to be seen to be working. <laughs> and I would say that predominantly that has shifted now. So. Councils COVID, the impact on on them was they moved very quickly to adopt new ways of working and they're continuing to support it. But something that I really want to sort of emphasize here is we have that luxury in many of our councils because we have great infrastructure that supports digital connectivity. However, Queensland is a very, very large state geographically, and many, many of our councils, particularly our rural and remote councils, our Indigenous and First Nation councils, do not have that luxury. They still do not have great digital connectivity, and it is something that we're passionate about changing at the LGAQ. And so for them, suddenly having to do everything online is far more problematic than it is for some mm-hmm. of us. So it's something that I always sort of um, just touch on because I think we have the luxury of, uh, you know, great connectivity here, but it's not the same everywhere.
0: So let me ask you this then. Obviously that that absolutely brings to mind the digital equity that, that also COVID kind of shined a light on as well. And the the current state of where you are, you, you're very much illustrating there there are have and have nots essentially. Yes. There's so many leaders out there that are talking about digital equity as an important aspect, but I'm not seeing the the ammunition behind it. So I'm curious to know from your vantage point, um, what one, what are you guys doing to drive and support digital equity? But two, what advice would you have to some of those leaders that maybe want to? And don't have the ability to or aren't really sure how to get started to bring um more equitable digital services to their citizens and to their employees
1: yeah it's a great question and i feel that i was quite shocked to be honest at how um how the digital inclusion issue in Queensland was was quite so strong I didn't realize the extent of it until I started working at the LGAQ I live in I live in Brisbane and I have fiber and you know that's wonderful for me but it's really hit home to me that that inequity it just has such long-lasting impacts on those those communities and particularly young people as well so
0: generational impact
1: absolutely absolutely you know you will see people that for many many years to come will be disadvantaged because they do not have access to the right type of internet connection and it's really and I think people sometimes think oh you know that's that's such an over exaggeration but it is absolutely very much so the same right that we should have to you know electricity and water and all of those things now it is a necessity for modern life at the LGAQ you know I'm really I am by far not the the best person to speak to the policy of it and we are very lucky to have some really smart policy people in the in the organization that pushes this agenda further with our state government and of course with our federal government. And so we're really trying to attack this on a on a policy level. Um, from my perspective and the very little that I you know I think I can influence I've been really lucky to bring together some very smart people from around the state who also have a desire to change this issue and so we have a digital inclusion and digital economy group and part of that is talking about what are the opportunities and there are many and, and, and the problem is vast because you know this problem is not just infrastructure so we can't just blame it on lack of infrastructure it's not just commercial you know we should have potentially roaming across um, different different providers and so on, but it's multifaceted. And so I think the way to um, try and influence it is talk about it at every opportunity that you get. So whenever I'm presenting now or I'm on a panel and people inevitably ask me about um, COVID impacts or, or, you know, what's happening in, in regional Queensland, I take the opportunity to talk about this. Also, I would say get together some really smart people in the room. You know, I've connected with people from the state libraries who are just fundamental in providing services to our regional communities. Often in those communities, nowhere else will have decent internet, but the library will. And that is a real lifeline. And so how do we support that? How do we broaden that out to make sure that the community has it? I'm also keen to look at You know, what are the opportunities to provide devices back into some of those communities? But not just give them a device that they can't afford or they have no data with or they can't get a connection to, but what else can we give them to help at that real grassroots level? So I don't think there's one answer. I think we need to attack it on a policy front. Um, It's a commercial conversation with the big providers of telcos. It's also about some of the new technology coming through, Starlink, some of those other opportunities. We absolutely have to all get together at every level of government um, and, and drive this forward. Because, you know, from a Queensland perspective, 10 years from now, we're going to have the Olympics here in in Brisbane and we will be on the global stage and I will be devastated if our regional and remote communities are unable to get decent internet connection whilst we are sitting here in Brisbane showing, you know, the world that we're an Olympic city.
0: So digital equity is obviously a massive challenge. There's several challenges. I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion. What do you see as as the biggest challenge? And and maybe there's not one you can point to, so so feel free to add a couple in. But over the next over the next decade, what do you see as the biggest challenge to these government organizations as they're looking to digitally transform, as they're looking to to drive these valuable services to their citizens?
1: I I wish I had just one answer. I really do. And and I don't I think even in Australia, you know, Australia is such a large, um, a large country even state by state, it's quite different. So, you know, I can really mainly speak to Queensland and I would say that the geographical size of Queensland, there are difficulties, right? There's absolutely no doubt. We have some very small councils that are responsible for huge land areas in Queensland. Um, you know, these these councils may not have the funding that's required. They may not have the resources, similar to what I'd mentioned earlier. So when it comes to just having people on the ground to support some of these needs, it can be quite difficult. Um, but, you know, at the same level, that then becomes a whole of government, I think, issue that needs to be addressed. And so I don't think there is one answer on, you know, what can we do, or what should we address first? I really think this is policy, it's infrastructure, it's commercial, um, it's culture. You know, there's there's a lot of, um, I guess, people that even some of our older generation they are still happy to be on forms that are paper based, or they're quite happy to still walk into a community center and so on. So there's so many components of this. That's what makes it really complex and. You know, I would hate to say that it's any one thing because I really think it's a bit of a combination of everything.
0: What are your thoughts around uh, talent? So mm. recruitment, retention, enablement. Um, it's its one of the things that I've seen globally has become a, a kind of a, just a universal challenge within government mm. for some of the obvious reasons, one of them being competing with the private sector. Do you think, and, and there's a narrative around Remote work and being able to have access to talent that might be beyond some of your your geographical reaches, right? But do you think that's that that could be a driver to to bringing more talent back into government? That COVID is kind of enabled, or do you think that's just a narrative that's not really going to manifest itself?
1: Look, I would love to think so. Local government, particularly, I mean, I previously worked at Brisbane City Council many years ago, and it was just such a great experience. And local government. It, you know it really allows you to be at the core face of what's happening and i think that gets overlooked quite a bit and and i think the joy of being part of a team that is genuinely working to make a community better is very very hard to find anywhere else it is stru- it's such a, a strong sense of purpose that we all share and so i think getting people into local government can be such a rewarding and amazing career but I think what you touched on just before around recruitment, it is really tough out there. And what I would say at the moment, and we've certainly experienced this, you know, through COVID, the COVID impacts, but also I'm seeing it with other people that I speak to, getting hold of talent is very difficult when you then have to fight for talent that are being offered you know, insane amounts of money, complete flexibility to work anywhere in the world often, um, numerous perks that could be difficult for local government to provide. It makes that shortage very real. We um, have been, luckily enough, actually just got a developer who's starting with us in a few weeks, but we had that in market, oh my goodness, about five months, just trying to get a developer and that's in Brisbane. And so I'm hearing that a lot. And I, I think it will settle down at some point, but the damage potentially is already done. We're seeing, you know, very a huge increase in wages and, and salary expectations. Um, people definitely are not really willing to work for organisations that wouldn't have some flexibility of hours and of course, location, which I think is absolutely right. But that is gonna make it challenging for some of our um, smaller councils that they can't offer those perks. They need someone to be in the community. They need someone to understand the community and they need to have someone that um, they can afford to pay ultimately. I think the flip side of that, of course, being that for a lot of those communities, if we could get really, really great internet access out there, that whole concept of being a digital nomad and being able to work out of genuine Outback Australia or some of those regions, they are beautiful. They are places that you want to see and the communities are supportive, nurturing, caring communities. That does open up a possibility of getting visitors and digital nomads to work from that area. But again, it it comes back to that connectivity issue. How do we solve that to make sure that they have genuine access to those communities?
0: I want to pivot a little bit and, and ask you this. So you've, you've had multiple roles in government and obviously as you've been in these roles, you've, uh, I'm sure no doubt had to engage with, um, private sector entities and, in industry folks. What's some of your advice to the industry? What's something that you wish everybody industry would, would stop doing, start doing, or just how do you feel like they could be better partners to government in your opinion?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think they often, and maybe this is really simplifying, it, <laughs> maybe, but but I think they think that there's a lot of money in local government and and in government generally, um, and I f- I often get really frustrated when vendors um, they'll come through with these very amazing products, right, and they'll they'll sell into a small council the the Maserati or the Lamborghini this council needs a Mazda, right? It 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 can't afford that level of service or product. And I think what happens is that they don't take the time often to understand the genuine issues that those communities and councils are having. One of the key focuses we have at the moment at the LGAQs is is community livability. And it's really about financial sustainability. It's a genuine concern for many of our councils. So vendors come in with these lofty ideals of, hey, we're going to solve all your problems. And they get councils to sign up for stuff. And inevitably what happens is they then walk away. And that level of support is not there. And these small councils don't have people internally to continue to support a product or c- continue to drive one. So, I guess my thoughts would be understand your audience, you know, understand genuinely what they're going through and provide them a service. They don't need more products, they need support, they need a service, and they need you to genuinely partner with them because pushing a product is not enough anymore. It's just not going to work. So really take the time to partner. That would be my advice. I know it's maybe a bit wishy-washy, but that's that's the best advice I could give vendors in industry.
0: I don't think it's wishy-washy at all. It's actually <laughs> patternistic to what I hear and hear fairly often is, I mean, leaders want you want to understand their challenges and two, they want you to jump in the foxhole with them and embrace those challenges yeah. and, and help them be successful do it together they don't want you and I think you you said it really well so they don't want you to sell something and then leave and move on to the next customer that you have and and now you're stuck trying to figure this out how you're going to support yeah. it how you're going to be successful that's not a partnership that's yeah. that's a that's a linear that's a linear relationship and you ultimately want to help drive success and it's only going to make you as a as a vendor more successful because that that government organization is going to want to work with you more. Absolutely. So I think that's, that that's a true partnership. That's the way to drive it. I think you said it well.
1: And I think there's so much opportunity for, you know, big, big industry players, Microsoft, Google, Meta, you know, whoever it is, there is massive opportunity in that government space because they, they need help with, you know, better systems and smarter systems and, and, and streamlining of systems is is a whole other thing. Um, You know, every council I know has uh, many, many legacy projects and, and systems that really need to be cleaned up. But I feel that you know, for some of those big players, there's definitely a push into local government. And I think that's right. And I think they have a a really important role to play there. But they have to remember that local government is not state government. It's not federal government. They are so diverse and they are absolutely, you know, different in terms of resources and funding take the time just take the time to understand their challenges better and i have absolutely no doubt that if you can form that perfect partnership and truly listen and understand them the changes that could be made could be genuine you know genuinely life-changing for some of those communities
0: so i i want to pivot away from some of the government talk and get mm. to kind of some something around around you and leadership i mean you've you've had a long career so far um you just last year won executive leader of the of the year um in 2021 uh for Women Digital National Awards which I think is is fantastic congratulations on that
1: thank
0: you as you take a look at your career what have some of the what have been some of the most important things that you feel you've learned that have yeah. helped help you navigate it thus far
1: well thank you firstly for the congratulations i still can't quite quite believe that (laughs) to be honest but um it it was a lovely recognition and definitely a wider recognition of the teams that I've been lucky enough to be part of um and look I think for me some of the lessons I've learned I've had some really great roles I've been so lucky in terms of some of the roles that I've had um since I moved to Australia in, in 2007, you know, everyone listening can hear that my accent is, is not Australian. I'm sure I'm actually Scottish. <laughs> I'm from Glasgow. Uh, but I moved to Australia in 2007 and I I sort of came here thinking I wasn't quite sure what I was going to go into. I was absolutely a digital nerd for sure. Always been into digital and gaming and, and all of those wonderful things. And I thought, oh, let me just have a bit of a break and then see where I end up. And When I look back at, I guess, the roles that I've had, I feel very lucky to have had them, but there's been some real standouts for me personally. And one of the ones that I think probably taught me the most, two probably taught me the most so far. The first one was being at Brisbane City Council when we actually, I started there in September 2010. And it was the first time I had seen a social media role offered in any kind of government um, agency throughout australia and i thought i'm gonna have a go at that definitely i was very in that space at my existing role at the time and i thought i'll have a go and i remember starting there in september 2010 and we went home at christmas and this always amuses me but we went home at christmas And I had doubled the Facebook likes from say 400 to 800 (laughs) at the time. And I always remember thinking, oh, that's amazing because who's gonna like a council page? Why would anyone like a council page on Facebook? And we all went home at Christmas and kind of you know, happy with the the work that we'd done. And then I got a call on the the 9th of January. We were all remote at the time, of course, we were still on leave and saying basically, Brisbane is about to get smashed with floods and so for those of you who know this story there was in 2011 in January Queensland particularly Brisbane and southeast Queensland got severe flooding Um, you know terrible consequences that came from that but we got told on that weekend hey something is about to go down we need to be prepared and I always remember what I learned most from from that role, and you know, maybe this is not the best advice, but sometimes you have to go rogue. Is my advice, <laughs> and <laughs> sometimes you have to be very much on the bleeding edge of approvals. And I'm, I'm saying that quite openly every, now. Every,
0: every CIO and chief <laughs> digital officer and, and leader out there are just shaking their heads,
1: <laughs> covering their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're like, stop, stop saying this. But let me explain why I'm, um, why I, I say that. Um, we, we knew. You know, yet we're in trouble here. And back then, our website was not in the cloud. You know, that was quite common at the time. It was in a, it was on a server which was in the basement, which of course was going to flood. But regardless of that, we had all of these flood flag maps where people could go and understand better what am I, you know, am I at risk of being flooded? Now, at the time, these were PDFs. Uh, some of these were 100 meg PDFs, and so suddenly you had thousands and thousands and thousands of people hitting that website. And of course, what happened? website went down right of course that was so it was all a learning but what we realized in that time was the best way that we could communicate with our community was through social media and so we immediately started using facebook and twitter as our primary communication channels because our website was down at the time the website took down the server also um meant that our internal emails were down so we just had this blank, I guess, in terms of communications. And we started using social media. Now, did we have um, complete authority to do so? No. But what we did was we knew our space very, very well. And we jumped on and we started using it. And that's what I mean by saying, you know, go rogue a little bit. Um, We had no way of tracking how we were speaking to each other and how we were making decisions. And so what we did was we actually started a Skype conversation and back then Skype was not approved. (laughs) So it was an unapproved channel. (laughs) But again, we were like, this is a tool that's going to work for us. And we started recording everything in our Skype channel. What that inevitably meant was that by, you know, we found that out on the Sunday, by the Tuesday, we'd gone from 800 people on Facebook to I think nearly 15,000. So a pretty huge jump. And it became very quickly our primary communication channel. And after all of that had happened, the changes that we saw internally at council and statewide around the use of tools that before that weren't really seen as as communication tools was significant. And we completely changed how we communicate with our um, residents and how we communicate internally. And so all of those little decisions that we made that were a little bit rogue, a little bit unapproved, actually was because we were smart and capable and we had the right people in the right place who knew what they were doing so my advice I guess out of that and what I learned is sometimes you have to get out of the way and let the smart people make the decisions you know they know what they're doing and that's why you've hired them so I've always sort of held that with me as I've gone through my other roles that you know if for me if I can bring in some really brilliant people and set the vision and the strategy and just support them when they need it, get the heck out of their way and let them get on and do what they want to do best. And that's what I think I've tried to do as I've gone through my other roles. Um, And I know I'm talking a lot, but the second role that I just wanted to touch on that was quite life-changing for me was uh, working at the Commonwealth Games so I was very lucky to head up digital for the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast um, which you know to US, US sort of listeners is the mini Olympics <laughs> I guess we might say Canadians and other Commonwealth countries will get it but um, I think for me that was life-changing because what I learned most from that other than of course hire really smart people and get out the way was you know, if everyone is working to the same goal, it is unstoppable in terms of what you can achieve. And when I started, I was employee 110, I think. And within those three years, we'd got grown to 3,000 employees in that organization. But every single one of us had a hard deadline of the 4th of April, 2018, at that point, we had to be ready because that is when we went live to the world. And if we weren't ready, we'd failed. Sharing that sense of commitment and purpose to a timeline is very, very powerful. And so, again, you know, I've tried to take that with me as I go through other roles to make sure that my teams share that sense of purpose, I guess.
0: Well, the other thing I took from your, your first story was also just to be ready for an opportunity. I think yes. you 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 took that social media role, or even applied and, and took that social media role. And at the time, I'm sure the role itself was very tactical and reactive, and it quickly became strategic. Yes. and and you had to be ready for that opportunity and, and harness that and become the mouthpiece for the organization. I think um, one, I mean, that's impressive in itself. But two, just, just I think that's a good lesson: just to be ready for those type of opportunities, look at those challenges as opportunities and be able to take advantage of them when they come for sure. Yeah.
1: I, I absolutely agree. And I was very lucky. I had a very supportive manager and and our team was very supportive. But you're absolutely right. We took every opportunity we could. You know, one of the things that impresses me the most in many ways at, at Council when I worked there, the team that we had, we were very strategic. So if we saw an opportunity to make a change that we genuinely knew was a a progressive positive change, we took that opportunity. We did not miss it. And, you know, you hear people say all the time, never waste a good crisis. And, And it's absolutely true covid has shown us that again right it's the exact same thing many people went rogue again got you know through covid the shadow it and, and setting up you know systems and processes overnight happened quite quickly but the reality is that that is often driven by a genuine understanding of what is needed and the bureaucracy and process sometimes uh, squashes that so i think you're spot on getting that chance don't miss it take your take that chance don't be scared. I know when you're often your earlier stages of your career, it can be really daunting to take some of those steps because you don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I truly believe that if you know your stuff and you have a supportive team and manager, you can't miss the opportunity. And, and it's gen, generally going to turn out more positively than negative, I think, long-term.
0: Well, while you're dishing out advice, before uh, I give you some uh, some chances to, to give a, a final thought to the audience... Do you have any advice you want to leave to the women in the technology space, especially maybe some, some younger women just getting into the field? You've navigated your, your career so far fairly successfully, I would say. Um, What, what advice would you give to them as they're kind of starting off on their journey?
1: I think for me, it is really about, you know, you will have imposter syndrome. Okay, so this is the first thing I'm going to call it out. We all have it. You will have imposter syndrome, but if you get the opportunity to sit at a table and give your advice or give your input or opinion, take that opportunity. But I think more importantly, and this is something that I see that concerns me a little bit women who are in more senior positions or executive positions who are lucky enough to have the power to hire and support other younger women, please, please. Take that opportunity. It is so important for younger women to have a good mentor or a good leader or role model to look up to. And you can do that by helping them up. It frustrates me when I don't see that sort of paying it forward type approach happen. So I would say to younger women, if you get the chance to participate and have a seat at the table, take it. Your voice is just as welcome as anyone else's. But also seek out mentors and role models that you think might be able to help you. Um, Reach out to them. Most of the time, they'll be really happy to help other women in you know, still a male-dominated space. So reach out to them and ask for help, ask for guidance because they will have so much information and experience that they hopefully are willing to share with you and should share with you, I will say as well.
0: I think you're spot on with the imposter syndrome and, and mm. I don't think that is just uh, specific to women in exactly. the space. I think that goes for all of us. I know I suffer from that all the time and I'll, there's times I'm sitting in meetings thinking, do, do they know I'm here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Isn't that so, weird? Uh, Isn't that weird? It like, is. It is. It doesn't matter. Like, I think, you know, for me, it doesn't matter what level you're at or anything like yep. that. It's such a real issue. And I've been working with some of my team in the last couple of weeks, actually, on this, because quite a few of my team have it. I do I do hear the women more openly talk about it, which I find really interesting, but certainly some of the guys in the yeah. team do too. Um, but look, we all have it, and I'm exactly the same. But I also think sometimes, you know, if you're the loudest person in the room that doesn't mean you're the smartest <laughs> so i also sometimes think, it's
0: usually the converse <laughs>
1: exactly so you know sometimes listen and then contribute is, is a good thing as well
0: i mean there's times too where my my wife will leave me home with our three kids and I'm, i look at her kind of like are you sure you, <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> you're trusting so, me with this are i you know sure? exactly <laughs> it's so strange so, but Look, we all, ha- we all have it, I think. Let's just put it out there. You know, we all have it.
0: <laughs> hey, Tracy, I, I appreciate the time. This has been a really fun conversation. As we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today?
1: Look, I think from my perspective, um, you know, some of the most interesting people that I meet are people that have various interests. So if you're trying to get ahead in digital or if you're trying to get a career in digital, absolutely focus in on that, but, you know, keep some of those other interests going as well. You know, one of my other roles is as a founder of a startup company at the moment, which is um, we're, we're doing a, a sort of an immersive VR entertainment experience. So it's very different from my day to day role. but so I just think that's what makes us interesting as people. That is where your other experiences, when you bring that into digital, it can be really beneficial because you can start to look at it from other angles, whether that's entertainment or experience or customer. So get just be rounded, I think. That's what I love about my team. They are very rounded. They have various interests and all of that, getting into that big melting pot makes a really great digital team.
0: I think that's great advice. Tracy, thanks for joining again. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcasts or wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at A B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.